Let's pray. Oh God, faithful, faithful God, we wanted to jump to our feet with the choir, standing before you, confessing that you have been utterly faithful. You have never failed us. You never fail. How could we be so fortunate to have the God of the universe as our dear, dearest friend? So we join with our sister of the congregations, our sister campuses. We have one agenda, and that is for you to show yourself faithful in San Antonio. That's all we're asking. We're not telling you what to do. We're simply opening up our hearts to you and saying, do whatever it takes for the sake of this, this faith community because it's beyond San Antonio that we must go. So a few moments we have together. Dear God, please speak to us through Holy Scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turns out, and I didn't know this till this week, to be honest with you, it turns out God is a farmer. I'm telling you, I got the evidence. I'm absolutely convinced he is a farmer. And it kind of set us up for this. There's a, there is a poignant piece that Paul Harvey put together. You know, he used to be, he's, he used to be the beloved radio commentary, uh, commentator, and he often was at the noon hour across America where farmers would turn on their radios and listen to Paul Harvey. He was, just, he was big in the agricultural community. So here's a, this is a Super Bowl uh, commercial. Don't worry about the product. It's a pickup truck, but don't worry about it. Uh, just just th this sets us up. So God made a farmer. Here we go. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a newborn colt and watch it die and dry his eyes and say, maybe next year. I need somebody who can shape an axe handle from a persimmon sprout, shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, who can make harness out of hay wire feed sacks and shoe scraps, who planting time and harvest season will finish his 40-hour week by Tuesday noon and then pain in from tractor back, put in another 72 hours. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink-combed pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. So God made a farmer. It had to be somebody who'd plow deep and straight and not cut corners, somebody to seed, weed, feed, breed, and rake, and disc, and plow, and plant, and tie the fleece, and strain the milk, somebody who'd bail a family together with the soft, strong bonds of sharing, who would laugh and then sigh and then reply with smiling eyes when his son says that he wants to spend his life doing what dad does. So God made a farmer. What's the big deal? God himself is a farmer. I want to show you. And in fact, the reason that point is so critical is because of prayer, it commands us. There will be a prayer 
that we will be led to in this short Bible study. And so if you would be so kind as open your Bible with me, let's go, let's go. We've had a full, we've had a full morning. And that, uh, you know what, that mission, uh, missionary dedication, wasn't that, didn't that just bless your soul? Ah. Maybe it fits into where we're going. Open your Bible to uh, Matthew chapter 13, please. The God of the universe, he's a farmer. I'm telling you, the God of the universe comes down, incarnated into our midst, tells a basket full of farm stories. Here are two of them. We're just going to fly by these real quick, all right? So those of you up in the, um, the mezzanine level, I'm going to just fly through some PowerPoints. Let's go. Matthew chapter 13. I'm in the NIV uh, today. Any, any translation you have is fine by me. You didn't bring a Bible, grab the pew Bible in front of you. It'll be page 658 in your pew Bible, Matthew chapter 13. Here comes the first farmer story. What's the big deal about the farm metaphor? It leads us to one prayer to pray today, a single prayer that we will pray. Matthew chapter 13, verse 1, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat. Oh, I'd love to see this on a DVD. And he sat in the boat while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables. Here we go. A farmer went out to sow a seed. So he's bobbing in that little fishing skiff. He's up and down. They're listening to every word. He describes the soils that every farmer on earth faces. Some soil is so tough that the seed lies there. The bird snatches it and it's gone. Other soil is so rocky that the roots can't go deep. Other soil yields, yields thorns. They just choke the plant out. But some soils are rich. Go down to verse, uh, verse 23 where he's giving the explanation of the parable. But, verse 23, the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Karen and I were just in Brazil for a week in Brazil, and we saw what is reported to be some of the most fertile soil in the world. Put it on the screen, please. It's red, red soil. We were down there in the Instituto Adventista Paranese. All around that campus, red soil. You walk in it, you get it on your shoes, you get it on your pants. It's there. It's stained. You know how rich this soil is? They can plant crop after crop. It's not once a year. They just keep the cycle going. As soon as they harvest, they plant another crop. As soon as they harvest, they plant another crop. Jesus says, some people are like that. The seed of my word falls in their hearts, and they just, boom, there's another harvest. Boom, it keeps coming up. <clears throat> the other story is right, right beside it here, verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed, sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. What's the point of this story? Turn over to uh, drop down to verse 37. Jesus says, here's my answer. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, verse 39, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Agrarian society, Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. They understand this. You and I understand it, don't we? Yeah. So let's, just get, let's, let's snatch a few of these God the Farmer uh, images all of them leading, leading to one prayer. So let's go to the Old Testament because this isn't just the New Testament. Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. You're going to need a page number for this one because it's going to take you forever to find Joel. I have to make sure I know where it is myself. <laughs> and so Joel, oh, here it is. Uh, Joel chapter 2. 
It's in the Minor Prophets, near the end of the Old Testament. All right, Joel chapter 2. Pick it up in verse 23. Here comes God the farmer again. He's always been a farmer. He's always been a farmer. Verse 23, be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains. Some of you have a translation that reads, he's given you the early rains, all right? Because he is faithful. Great is your faithfulness. He is faithful. Oh, he sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. Rain is a big deal for a farmer. Verse 24, then when you get the rains, the threshing floors will, will, will be filled with grain and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. God the farmer. You see, because God is a farmer, he's embedded this metaphor throughout Scripture. In Palestine, they had, they had two rains. They had rains at the beginning when, when they're sowing. That would be in the fall. So in the autumn, they would have the first rains just to get the sprouts up. And then in the spring before the harvest so that it really goes gold, one more rainy season. Those are called the latter rains, the spring rains. And then, boom, the harvest. Now, God is not just giving us a little meteorological report because as God knows, as God knows, our farmers are desperately dependent on rain. You live in California, do you? California, what is it? Dry, brittle, dusty. The farmers are beside themselves. It's over. If you live, however, in the southwest or the south, guess what? Too much rain and it's washing the seed away this year. Farmers the planet over live and die by the rain. So it's a big deal, but God's not giving a little meteorological report. What are you trying to tell us, God? Oh, drop down to verse 28. And afterward, afterward, God speaking, I will pour out my spirit on all your people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Ah, God says, listen, I'm not just talking about rainfall. I'm talking about the outpouring of the spirit. And by the way, when Peter quotes these words in Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost, he, he adds, or either Luke does, he adds the words, in the last day. God says, in the last day, I'm wiping out all distinctions. No more class distinctions, no more age distinctions, and no more gender distinctions. Trust me, in the conversation they're going to be having in San Antonio in a few days, this verse will come up. It will come up. God says, when we get down to the end, I'm changing the rules. I'm going to pour out my spirit on everybody. All right, here's another one. And th by the way, this one, go to Revelation chapter 14. This is Pioneer's favorite. And do you know why it's Pioneer's favorite? I direct your attention immediately overhead, right above the choir. High over their heads is our beloved, we call this our rose window. We just love this. It looks like a flower, doesn't it? The artist has put God the farmer. I told you he's a farmer. He's a farmer in that stained glass window. Look at that. Look at that. He's sitting on the cloud. And what's he have in his hand? What a farmer uses when it's time for harvest? Sickle. God is a farmer. Our favorite stained glass window, and here it is, Revelation 14. The artist there is describing the words here. Revelation 14, 14, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud. Yep. And seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, yes, with a gold crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Verse 15, then another angel came out of the heavenly sanctuary, the temple, and he called out in a loud voice, like a megaphone it says in the Greek, to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. God, the farmer, harvesting his friends, his children, taking them into eternity. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's throughout Scripture. 
Some will not be taken. Scripture doesn't leave that out, by the way. I'm going to just uh, go, to the, go to the screen here and we'll, we'll save you looking it up. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 20. Look at this line. The harvest is past. The summer has what? Ended. And we are not saved. Not everybody gets harvested. But you see, it's based on the, it's based on the farm life in, in, in Palestine because they had two harvests. They had the, the harvest in the spring is grain, all right? It's grain in April. The harvest in the fall, August or September, is fruit. It's grapes, figs, and olives. So if you missed, if you had no rain and you can't get this harvest, you're hoping and praying, ah, we're going to come to this one and we'll have fruit at least for food. But if you miss this one, it's over. There's nothing to eat. We are lost. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. We are, we are not saved. God takes that metaphor as a description of earth. And oh my, too little, too late. I suppose those would be the saddest two words that the human race, somebody in the human race one day cry out, I'm too late. I am too late. What was I thinking of? What was I waiting for? I'm too late. Some of you today are wrestling with something that you know that God wants you to do. The Spirit is speaking to your heart, and it's very clear to you, I must do this. I'm telling you, my friend, do not put it off. If, he, if his voice is clear to you, don't wait for tomorrow, mañana. You must do it today. Otherwise, it's too late. Now, that's a little bit of bad news in this harvest metaphor, so we need to quickly, quickly throw in some good news and, and, and in the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm, let's just do it on the screen. Psalm 126. Psalm 126. Those who sow with tears. This is the other, the needle goes to the joy side of the, uh, the meter now with harvest. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. I want to say a word to you who are missionaries. We are so proud of you for going. We are just proud of you. Andrews University is a huge sending church. We've got almost 100 nations here. Missionaries go from here every graduation. But to have you, and I like the way you put it, Cheryl, going, coming from 11 nations, going to 12 or however you put it, it's no longer just one sending nation now. The whole world church is sending to each other, and that's beautiful. So you're going to go out with tears. Some of you are going to go out with tears. It's, it's not going to turn out the way you thought. You're going to, but here's the word, here's the word. One day, even in eternity, one day those tears will be turned to joy. One day you will celebrate and you say, ah, that's what was happening. That's what was going on in my life. I never knew this. Ah, oh, they go out with tears. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Reminds me of that old gospel hymn. Bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing. Bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing. Bringing in the sheaves. Oh, I love that because there's no tragic. The harvest has ended. This harvest has passed. The summer has ended. I'm lost. No, bring the sheaves in. That's the joy of heaven. Now, look at all these. God the farmer. Have we proved the point? God is a farmer. Yes, he is. He's shown it every time you look at our stained glass window. All of this is leading to a single prayer. 
You know, in times past, we pray for the Holy Spirit before General Conference. Five years ago, Lord, pour out your spirit. It's a great prayer. We prayed for unity. That's a great prayer. Today, a different prayer. Because pray this prayer, you get the rest. There's one text, huge God the farmer text, and we end with this. Matthew, go to Matthew chapter 9. You know these words. I don't want you to read it on the screen unless you don't have a Bible. Matthew 9, I want you to see this in your Bible because I want this to stick with you. It needs to stick with me. Red letters. We end with red letters. That's the way it ought to be. Matthew chapter 9, familiar words of Jesus, verse 37. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the, late, but the workers, NIV, the workers are few. Verse 38, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Absolutely clear. Jesus could not be clearer in that prayer. The, the farming metaphor is to the hilt now. But before we examine Jesus' words for a moment, I want to insert an observation. Do you mind if I do this? I want to just slip this in right here. I've hung around the church. I've hung around the church for a few years in my young life. I've watched this church globally. Listen, the great danger we as a church and people face is that we are too easily distracted from our raison d'etre, from our, our reason for existence, from our mission. And nothing distracts an organization or a community or an institution or a church faster than internecine debate. Nothing takes our eyes off the ball quicker than a family squabble. Do you understand what I'm saying? To the place, if I were the devil, and by the way, you can be thankful I'm not, but if I were, I'd be a lot easier on you than he is. If I were the devil, and by the way, remember, Charleston, the president was in Charleston yesterday, broke into amazing grace. Charleston, nine dead in the sanctuary of, in the refuge of a church. Who killed him? The devil did. The devil is, despises you. He's a killer and a liar. Do you think he loves you? Do you think he gives two hoots about what happens to you? Dead. That's all I want. I want him dead. He despises the church. And if I were the devil, I would despise the church too. Richard John Newhouse, that brilliant mind, wrote these words. I put it on the screen for you. God's chosen ones live out the drama and destiny of God Himself. It is a fearful thing to be chosen. It is as though God enters history through His chosen ones. I think of those words when I think of this faith community that I have the privilege of belonging to. It's a fearful thing to be chosen at such a critical hour. Ellen White is right. Put her words on the screen too, please. Enfeebled and defective as it may appear, the church is the one object upon which God bestows in a special sense His supreme regard. It is the theater of His grace. Oh, I love that. That's the church. It's the theater of His grace in which He delights to reveal His power to transform hearts, which is why, now please listen, which is why if I were the devil, I would make sure this faith community with its Revelation 14 mission to the world would end up with constant distractions and constant debates. I would have those debates lined up like the planes over O'Hare Airport, just waiting to come down. One lands, next, then the next. That's what I would do. I would keep this church utterly distracted. 
debating, debating, debating. Because you know what? People forget, speaking of the devil, people forget that I know Scripture better than any human on this planet. I, the devil, know that Jesus spoke the words, Matthew 24, 14, and there's something mysterious in those words. I know about this, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. I know in my heart, in some mysterious sense, God can step into this at any moment and cut it short. Cut the work short. So, if I'm the devil... I don't want the mission done. I do not want that mission completed because when it's completed, it's curtains for me. I'll distract them. I will distract them. I will distract them. I will distract them to keep their eye off the ball. That's why this prayer that Jesus is asking us to pray is so huge on the eve of San Antonio. Delay, delay, delay. That's all the devil wants. Look at verse 37 again. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The harvest is plentiful. Do you understand that? It's always been plentiful from God's point of view. He sees what we don't see. We say, oh, it's tough in this country. It's really tough in the country of America, in the secular West. Oh, God, it's so tough. God says the harvest is plentiful. What are you, what are you, what are you complaining about? It's like, you know, Jesus is sitting there by the well in Sychar. He's just had a conversation with a woman of Samaria. You remember that little conversation? The disciples are in town going to Mickey D's to bring back a little bit of lunch because Jesus said, I'm hungry. They get back, and Jesus says, oh, by the way, guys, I don't need any food. I've already had food to eat. And the disciples are saying, what happened here? Did somebody come that we don't know and brought food to him? Jesus said, no, you don't understand it. I've had, to, I've had other food to eat. And then he says, hey, fellas, what do you say? The harvest is in three months. Is that what you say? Look. And he looks down the road because here comes the woman, the Samaritan woman with all the men in town right behind her. He says, look, you say it's in three months. I say the harvest is white now. And if it was white 2,000 years ago, what do you think God is saying about the planet today? The harvest is golden white. Pray, pray, pray the harvest is plentiful. But the, how does it go? But the, what's few? I don't have any help. I don't have any help. I don't have enough Betty Brantley's. I don't have enough Betty Brantleys in the church who just step outside their comfort zone, as we saw just a moment ago, and just blurted out, you want to have Bible studies? And Rhonda is now a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church sitting right there with Betty because somebody, because Betty cared. Man, this is, this is simpler than I thought. I can do it at the hospital where I work. I can do it in the garage where I labor. I can do it anywhere with a neighbor across the street for 20 years and then blurt it out. And what are we supposed to do? Jesus says, ask, verse 38, ask the Lord of the harvest. The Greek actually reads beg. It's really tepid in the New, New, New International. They kind of blew it on this one because they'll elsewhere translate it uh, beg, implore, beseech the New American. Beseech will translate that word. Watch this. These two words right here are used by the, the father of the demoniac boy. You remember the story about the boy that the disciples could not cast the demon out of? Here we go. Luke chapter 940. The father uses both words Jesus uses in uh, Matthew's line. I begged. There it is. Same word. Instead of ask, I begged your disciples to drive it out. Ekbalo. That means to cast out. So here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I need you, please. To beg, beg the Lord of the harvest to cast out, to drive out, to throw out, 
Throw me out, God. Throw the church out. Just get us back into what we've taken our eye off of. Please, give us the heart of Christ. Give us the heart of Jesus. Throw us out. You know why? God maybe wants me to be praying that prayer. God, I beg of you, cast me out, cast the church out into the harvest at this time. God, I beg of you, cast the church out, cast me out. God, I beg of you. Finally, God's going to show up. Yo, Dwight, thank you for that prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. I know where you got it from. Why don't you, why don't you answer your own prayer? Get out. Why don't you go? Derek Morris, my friend. Derek, in his uh, book, uh, The Radical Prayer, I put his words on the screen. Perhaps you're thinking, based on, this, on this, this, the two lines of this prayer, perhaps you're thinking, Derek writes, what will happen to me if I give the Lord of the harvest permission to throw me out into his harvest? Derek answers, that's his responsibility, not yours. When the Lord of the harvest throws you out, he's not discarding you. Rather, he's placing you where he wants you to be. It may be a distant land or it may be right where you currently live. Your assignment, my assignment is to be willing, to be ready, to pray the radical prayer, to earnestly plead, Lord of the harvest, I earnestly beg you to throw out laborers into your harvest, and you have my permission to begin with me. So on this day of prayer, I say, let's pray this prayer. Come on, let's pray this prayer. We pray this prayer for ourselves. Let's pray this prayer for our church. God, we beg of you, do whatever it takes. Drive us out. Throw us out. Throw the church out into this world, dying and desperate to know the love of Jesus. Give us Jesus' heart. Give us his compassion. By the way, the, the, the description of Jesus just before he gives this prayer, verse 36, I put it on the screen. I like it from the message uh, rendition. When Jesus looked out over the crowds, his heart broke. So confused and aimless they were, like sheep with no shepherd, heartbroken. The world, like, a, like sheep with no shepherd, a, confused and aimless. By the way, the church with no mission, confused and aimless, confused and aimless. A century ago, this probing question, put it on the screen for you, we talk of Christian missions. We dedicate the missionaries. The sound of our voice is heard. But do we feel Christ's tender heart longing for those outside the fold? And unless our hearts beat in union with the heart of Christ, how can we understand the sacredness and importance of the work, the mission to which we are called? Yeah, but Dwight, come on, come on. I thought the big deal is we're supposed to be praying for unity. Isn't that what you said last Sabbath? Very good point. Excellent point. But the truth is, nothing will unify this community of faith here or in San Antonio or anywhere else on this planet, nothing will unify us as effectively and as powerfully and as quickly as plunging us into our shared mission. Because when we do stuff together and our eye is on the ball, what bothered us before, pff, come on, move on. Unity is not warm spiritual fuzzies. Well, let's just have unity. Ooh, that feels good. No, that's not unity at all. Are you kidding? Unity is a derivative. Unity is derived. It is catalyzed by action, by action. One solitary mission we share. It is that sharing of the mission that moves us into unity. In fact, one more sentence on the screen. Mission is the strongest catalyst there is for unity. That's it. Mission. God, do whatever it takes. Please, throw me out. Cast us out.
please. The harvest is ready. The labors are few. Throw the church out there and get your harvest done. And so for the next few moments, that's the prayer. We're going to pray that prayer. Like a mighty symphony of faith, let's lift our voices up, collective praying, music to God's ears. Put that prayer on the screen, please, because this is the prayer. Let's pray. So you can look up at the screen. I'm going to ask you to form a group of four, five, six. Look, it doesn't matter. Let's pray. Let's pray for these. God, cast us out. The organ will be quietly playing. When you're through praying, we'll sing a powerful, send us out hymn. All right? Let's pray. Do you mind moving into the aisle? Would you be comfortable to move into the aisle? Just, you, you, don't, you don't need to kneel down. You can turn around in the pew if you'd like. Pray with somebody, two or three of you, four of you, five of you. Let's take this time right now to pray. This is the hymn of the General Conference. It's been for years, and it will continue to be, and we're going to sing it right now. Stand to your feet. We have this hope. Let's sing it together. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen.